This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well. I'm enjoying reading the draft of somebody's thesis. Oh, that's so good. I love that you're enjoying reading it and not crying. I love <laughs> that there are no tears. There's not even tear tracks or anything on Sam's face. No. That's very nice. At least I'm good at covering them up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, good tissues. <laughs> I am very much enjoying some academic writing that is written for people to read. Mm. And that, well, mm. that means I've done it exactly how I intended it to. I wanted it to be readable for everybody. Yay. That's, that's good. That's a that's win. That's good. Yep. And who are we introducing today? It's an absolute pleasure to introduce Susan Crumdike today. Um, Susan is um, in New Zealand, but working for Harriet Watt University or waiting to go. It's complicated. Um, And Susan, having a look um, through the papers that you've published and uh, and your bio that I found on your previous university website, um, you're amazing. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. You back, Kiora. Kiora, Susan, where are you, Susan? I'm still in my uh, home in Christchurch after a nice rebuild with lots of insulation. It's so comfy. <laughs> so just enjoying Christchurch still. Um, uh, yeah, I started uh, at Harriet Watt um, almost a year ago. I had worked for Canterbury University Department of Mechanical Engineering for um, 20 years. And I was the first woman in the engineering college to be promoted to full professor, um, rising through the ranks in engineering. So I, I, um, I'm known as an icebreaker because I just do stuff that um, needs to be done, <laughs> but open up a, a big channel behind me for people to, to, to come along and join. And reverse migrating or you're you're heading off or are you going to stay here and, and commute well <laughs> yeah i've been commuting uh, by <laughs> by wire for <laughs> a year now um no the the, the back story is that i i've been at canterbury university for 20 years i've had this um amazing run in quite a few fields actually i'm, I'm quite well cited in geothermal energy and in um, material science, especially, we're now spinning out a company to um, use a, a, a process and a material that we invented that is very highly antimicrobial, but very re- robust. It, it can be a coating on touch surfaces. Um, and that 
that technology, um, I was a partner in, in a NASA and Air Force project on hypersonic vehicles. And, and so I've, I've done a lot of things, but as I was doing stuff that you can actually get research funding for, I was also doing stuff that there isn't a research funding category for, which is how are we actually going to not cook the planet? <laughs> so I, I'm an energy engineer and I spent a lot of years on the things you've heard of. So solar, wind, um, geothermal, in, energy efficiency in buildings, vehicles. And then I started pushing over into areas where nobody had really done much thinking like, um, okay, Imagine that oil supply declines or just doesn't grow. Are we ready for that? Are we prepared? What's our action plan? And <laughs> it turns out, well, that can't happen, right? So in the 2000s, I uh, kept talking to ministers and, and companies, all oh, that can't happen. Well, what if the price of oil doubled because the global um, capacity margin got too small, uh, which I think is actually going to happen around 2007, eight? Um, oh, that can't happen. But the price could go really high because we don't have any price management mechanisms. Oh, that can't happen. We have biofuels. <laughs> so, you know, really, we weren't actually prepared for that. And it caused a global recession um, to pay twice as much for fuel without getting twice as much benefit. Um, and, and so that field that it's been about 20 of my PhD students have been in this field. And um, we started looking at at um, the engineering of change. Now there's, there's change projects all the time, but um, the reason you change and what you're gonna change can be quite obvious. Like we have an old boiler, we gotta replace it with a new one. Uh, we have an old operating system, we gotta replace it with a new one. <laughs> but what if that change is about reducing the amount of fossil fuel we use? And that we found was a very rich area and not just for engineering, but it has to be really interdisciplinary because you're talking about people's um, uh, meeting their needs, which then leads you to say, well, what are needs and what is just habits? And so, yeah, it's, it's been an amazing field. And um, right before COVID, I published the first textbook on transition engineering. So that's, that's where we got to. And then um, I wanted to start a transition lab, you know, the whole just transition thing. I wanted to really build that up and take it global. Um, and Harriet Watt came in and said, we want to build up a transition lab and take it global. And we've got 26 million pounds. You think you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and that sounded a lot easier. <laughs> but the idea is also to, to do a sister lab thing with, um, with people still in Canterbury and um, and we're not selling our house because we've we've got the comfortable house in Christchurch now. So and kids and grandkids here. So gonna go sort out Scotland and then and then return. <laughs> so the the intention was to to be here through the pandemic. It, it wasn't that you were um, planning <laughs> no, on being in other places. Intention because I uh, they recruited me and I went and visited. And what's funny is I did visit. Scotland and um, it's actually the islands that were supposed to decarbonize by 2030 um, through our, our center. So I visited Orkney Island and found out that everybody there has a relative in the South Island of New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I gave a presentation and I tell you, it was exactly like being in Dunedin. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, okay, 
it's maybe a little more bleak than Dunedin. <laughs> But um, yeah, the the people are great. So um, I thought about that for for quite a bit and then um, took that job early in 2020 and was supposed to, I was finishing my semester where I was teaching transition engineering at um, Canterbury. And so I I said, I got to finish that semester and and go in July. Uh, So that's when I started work. But by July, (laughs) we weren't going anywhere. So, so I've just, yeah, I've been working on building up that center. Um, it's really hard to get to know people by video. Did you know that? Yeah. You can visit people you've already been with physically and you know them a bit, but to get to know people um, has been a bit tough. <laughs> so how are you making those sorts of connections? Are you phoning people up that you would otherwise drop in for a coffee with and asking for a chat? Well, we have small windows of time where we're actually both awake (laughs) with the UK. So there are a lot of people here have found out in in the UK, and you know what I'm talking about. So usually I work the nights, and they will meet with me in the mornings. So I have invited some colleagues to dinner, (laughs) And and so we make a fancy breakfast, and they make a fancy dinner as if we had company coming. And then we tell them what we made and we sit down together and have a meal and, um, you know, talk about our kids, the stuff you would do if you had a social visit. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's, that knowing somebody that you work with, you know, knowing what they're going through, knowing what they've been through, knowing what their joys are. Um, that makes working with them easier and we should all we should all work on, on making sure we do that even when we're locked down. Oh, 
together with colleagues, but even more difficult to get out into the community. Um, I, I have made some connections and we've had some great conversations, but you know, if I was there, I'd just be going around knocking on people's doors and walking into businesses and, and uh, yeah. Um, so, and because I've only got a few hours where I can stay awake, um, that's, yeah. So, um, have a lot of work to do. So what does the center of transition engineering look like in your head at least all right um well we've got some industrial partners and they are going to handle kind of the operations so we need um to manage stakeholder um, processes we need to advertise we need to bring in more money so the our industry partners are sort of doing that layer um, and then we've worked with community organizations industry the council and other academics to build up what the program is. And the program, like I said, you can you can see it in my book. It's the way we roll. We, uh, very first thing, you gotta get a cohort in a place. So real people in a real place. Uh, we don't do abstract stuff, like we could do solar, we could do photovoltaics, we could do electric vehicles, right? We, we get down to the ground and we work from the ground up. So building these cohorts, who's gonna come through? Um, one of my favorite cohorts at the moment, well, we've got fairies, we've got farmers, we've got um, schools, we've got food distribution, um, you know, retail stores, but um, uh, builders. Well, one of my favorites is 15-year-old is girls. <laughs> so we get together and we talk about where is oil in our lives? Where, where's the oil? Where's the gas? And where that is, we have to start thinking about what do we actually do with it? What, how do we use it? What do we need? Um, and that means we have to talk about needs, we have to talk about um, necessity, essentiality. Um, and then we look at, well, okay, that um, oil and gas has to decline quite a bit. And we're looking for an 80% drop in our project. We're gonna do a project through this and we're looking for an 80% reduction in how much energy we use. And that creates a wicked problem because we use that oil and gas for a reason because it works. <laughs> But it really is an unsustainable thing, so it has to change. So we have a process where we work through this wicked problem. You know, it's like like coming up to a um, a very dangerous looking dog. <laughs> There's ways to behave and approach this thing. There's ways to understand the state it's in, this sort of thing. So we, we work on that wicked problem, and then we start a process. So that cohort comes in, and our process is called interdisciplinary transition innovation management and engineering and yes it's the best acronym ever in time 
<laughs> so we go through this in-time process for change to meet climate objectives. And that sounded wordy, but what we really do is um, we go through a process that starts, it's a seven-step process, and it starts with our need that we identified in the wicked problem and our place and our people, our group, our cohort. Um, we we start there and we time travel backwards 100 years. So we go back 100 years and we see how our grandparents met that same need 100 years ago. Because huh? 100 years ago, you've got fauna out there. <laughs> Probably you didn't actually, well, somebody like me, I actually know my grand, or knew my grandfather who was alive 100 years ago. So we have that connection of 100 years. And, and um, Maori people I've talked to in New Zealand, they're like, yeah. <laughs> now, Westerners, like, oh, that's way longer than a political cycle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. But we learn so much by the problem solving, opportunity uh, taking, um, creativity of our own people in our own place 100 years ago. Um, and there has been so much change since, uh, well, actually, we used 1911. We <laughs> don't really want to get into the war period. <laughs> so we used 1911. Um, and things, our town was here, our mountain was here, our river was here. Um, our, our cathedral was here. You know, there's so many things that were here. Our university was here. Um, and then there are some very telling things that aren't there. There's no oil. <laughs> and that we explore, okay, well, how did they meet this need? Just to find out, not because we want to duplicate it, because the world we have now isn't the world they had, but learn, right? So we learn from the past and then we look at what happened in the last hundred years then. How did we get where we are? Um, what were the policies? What were what happened um, in the country? What happened socially? What happened technologically? And we, we see how we get to where we are. And then we need to deposit information about the way things are now. Are your needs being met? Um, what isn't working? Um, what is working? What are the assets you've got? What are the values that you have? And how do you keep those? And so we have a, a, a process that we work through there where people curate that information into their own um, information um, trust, their own data trust. But now we have data that we can start to track how our project um, improves things. Um, we can use that data to model options to design things, um, you know, to connect up what, what you can do, which engineers can figure out with, um, with the, the next um, confident step. That's what we're after, is a project that gives us a next confident step. We can't leap to sustainability by adopting a technology. We can only take the next step in that direction. So the third step, after we've got our, our um, data trust uh, built up um, and that cohort is really getting to know each other pretty well. So we've got to do a very hard thing, which is to crash test our beliefs and our assumptions about how we're going to um, solve the problems that we've got, you know, whatever they are that we're focusing on, but largely uh, about um, fossil fuels. Because if you look at our, our sort of the things we're bombarded with 
the, the shared beliefs that we have, these opinions that keep coming around about, okay, well, we're going to have a hydrogen economy, we're going to electrify everything, we're going to have EVs, we're going to um, put solar panels on everybody's roofs. Um, we need to look again at our need and say, okay, well, what would that do for that then? And then again, with engineering modeling, we can crash test that to see in uh, sort of by building a simulation, a, a virtual version, we can show you um, how that would work or whether it will. And often, almost every time, <laughs> what we find is that the things that occupy our mind and the airwaves and the clickbait are not actually viable options to meet our needs. There's something somebody's trying to sell to our political leaders to get money out of them, <laughs> uh, frankly. <laughs> and so we have to actually, we have to put those away from our thinking because if you already think there's a solution, you cannot think creatively and innovate and, and discover, right? So we have to be able to put away the things that are noise and get on with our process, which the next step is to go 100 years in the future. <laughs> is our river still there? Is it drinkable now? Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> because the future we're choosing to go to is the one we want to gift to our grandchildren. And so it's going to be um, good. The, 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 the messes that we've made, we will have cleaned those up. <laughs> The targets that we've set, we will have met them, all right? And so moving through time with belief in that there is a future where that's possible. There's lots of futures that are kind of Mad Maxi, but <laughs> we're going to know that we actually um, intend, right? So we have an intention. And then we explore that future. Um, the foothills are still there. Kind of funny that, you know, the, the hills here, the port hills in, in um, Christchurch, they're actually covered with bush now and with a very productive bush where people can, can gather food and, you know, it's not just for recreation. They're very productive, these regenerations that have happened. Um, the city's pulled back. The sprawl has, has not, not continued. It's actually pulled back. And people are living in communities where they access their activities by walking and cycling actually because the oil's gone and they've dealt with it. So just when, like with my students last year, my final year mechanical engineering students who I was teaching transition engineering to, when we did this exercise, we were actually in COVID lockdown. And so they could go out and see what their city looked like without cars. And we had people in, in towns, we had Master 10, we had, um, you know, lots of Aucklanders. Uh, but, you know, they could actually go out there and see what their city was like. And every single one of them said, that's where I want to go to. <laughs> you know, we can figure out how to live in this city without cars. This is insane. We, we can see it. And it's what we want. So COVID has done something for transition engineering that would have taken a lot of imagination. <laughs> but now, yeah, I've been there. I've been to that future. I see it. Um, so again, we address the need we were talking about in the place we were talking about with the values that we have. And we see how those people, how our future for now are doing this thing. Um, 
in their place. And what's really interesting when we do this exercise is that we find that they've added so much real value to the system. It's not just about money and it's not about scrambling to, you know, to increase wealth. There's, there's the problems that we have now have been solved and there's really creative ways that they've done it. So that exercise then really frames up the innovation space that we can work in because when we come back to our time, which is the fifth step, we have to ask a really hard question, which is what do they have in our future place that we don't have? And those are hard questions because, for example, what they have that we don't have is the ability to live in a decent house within walking and cycling distance of their work. There are trams and electric trains all over the country, but they're, they're used more for recreation, more for um, uh, long-term business, more, more for moving goods. And with modern tools of engineering, we can calculate how that works, right? We can build model train sets and, and model tram sets of how, um, how, how this all works. Uh, and what we've seen um, in the future is that people don't really commute by the trains that they have. Um, they commute because they're in the community that does those things. And there's a lot more local jobs too. There's a lot more of people making things right and serving people right where they are. Um, right, so what we find that, you know, that really defines then the thing we're looking for in this creative space. And that's where uh, the next step is to look for a trigger, a trigger for something to happen um, which all the kids sort of just took the easy way out and said, COVID, <laughs> <laughs> a trigger for new things to happen. Um, you know, sometimes, well, COP21 was a trigger. We just haven't acted on it yet. Um, and then they propose a project. So they develop concepts and propose a project. It has to be a project you could do right now that would achieve the first step, or maybe you can do it all in one go, but something about that next step towards that good thing that they have in the future that we don't have, about you know going that way. And that's where um, I'll just let you know that my, my cohort of, of students in my class, um, there's, as a professor for 20 years, you get used to the, the bell curve sort of thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that there's a, a few who who really oh boy that's you know wow over the top and then you get this sort of bulk of well what I could be bothered to do I did <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the tail <laughs> and this particular class um, their median GPA was the same as as the whole cohort um, but they were all just totally piled up on the amazing work end of things. Their curiosity, their intention, their, their attention, that uh, we actually got their attention, which, which for, for young, <laughs> young people these days is a, is a big ask. <laughs> and so I was just really amazed at, at how amazing their projects were. Um, and and that's, that's the process we want to go through. I mean, okay, we had engineers on that one, but they had to learn so much about um, their neighbors <laughs> and, and other people. And, you know, we really want to team up um, folks and go through this process. So, so that's the Island Center for Net Zero. That's what we're going to be doing um, in Orkney.
Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui ki a koutou ko tāhoho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope, wherever you are, and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining, and illuminating for you more and more each day, who you are of nature's art, perfect, unique, and here, making things better. Thank you. Now I know that for all of us, we've been through a very trying time, a very difficult time with lots of learning, lots of growth, lots of change. The unexpected has come upon us and interacted with our very understanding of reality we've had to really shift and change so much together over the last more than a year and I personally feel that we are still recovering from this <clears throat> not only in terms of our psychological shifts and changes that have had to take place but also in terms of the physiological stress that's been placed upon us. I feel that our nervous system is still recalibrating as a result of this. So I really hope that for you, you're finding ways to care for yourself and for the other life forms around you in ways that are really supportive and helpful to you. Here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we find ourselves heading closer and closer to the shortest day further and further into the wintry depths and what does this mean for us I feel it means we must find ways to warm ourselves and each other to find those aspects of the world around us that really inspire and bring us joy to find each day examples of behaviours and strategies that really give us hope and remind us of who we are what we can do. I feel so lucky to live in Aotearoa's Dunedin and be surrounded by such kindness and generosity. I see every day in these small acts people caring for each other. I've been so lucky to have a lot of help and support over this time and I've done my best to reciprocate that. Of course, whenever we look around us in the living world, we see constant examples of this reciprocity, manakitanga, this exchange, this interplay of giving and receiving, offering opportunities to, to share and to help one another. And of course, all of this can give us such great hope and inspiration. <coughs> I'm heading out today to my heart's home, Orokunui Eco Sanctuary, which of course is a living example of this reciprocity. When we give back to the land and we make a safe space available for our native species, we in return receive so much 
inspiration such beauty from their presence so i really hope that for you whatever aspect of the world around you you're giving your timely to you're seeing those results you're seeing that aspect grow and flourish and i love about orica is that we're 16 years into a 1000 year journey and i know that i can give what i can to it but it will long outlive me i'm really hoping that i can be there for and of course for all of us it's true wherever we are however we give our time and energy this beautiful world will, will outlive us, will continue to grow, develop and change. Those atoms and molecules made up a body as they turn to the earth and change form, grow into something else. And we return to that infant kind of want to capture so many ways of us. So I really hope that you, wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, whatever temperature it is, you're finding hope and inspiration to warm. And I look forward to talking soon. Thanks. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Susan Crumdike. Susan, uh, I actually have just written a blog piece for a, a local business website, and it was basically saying to people, go to every single five-year-old plus that you know and ask them to imagine what does their job look like when they get to be a big person? What is the job that they're doing? What does it look like? Where are they living? And and it, and people just really struggle with the notion of that. but it's that whole like the unknown unknown we don't know what we're walking into our kids are going to be they are the ones who are going to be inventing that as they go and here you are actually doing that with them and it blows me away yeah i when i went into engineering in the 80s my intention was to do you know sustainable energy and i did not think we would leave it to our kids to solve these problems. I thought the scientists are clear. Now that we've got the information, off we go, we'll solve this problem. And and then, yeah, here we are. So uh, the things I've looked into to try and understand how how do we make a change like this? Has there been a change like this in history? And I don't actually think there has been a graceful change like this in history. Um, And I wanted to know why not? You know, humanity, we are a... 100,000 year plus experiment and um, we've worked out a lot of things in that time and I think it if I look less than you know just in the last hundred years we've done a new experiment and we've sort of tossed out um, the old ways that worked and what we are absolutely future blind Um, and I think that there's a necessity to that that if, because we can't understand our own mortality, then future gazing is, um, is hard. And the other thing is, because we didn't need to look at the future, we, we haven't had to look at the future. Why not? Because we have traditions. <laughs> we knew what the future was going to be like. We were going to teach our tamariki how to do the things. We were going to, yeah. <laughs> and so the future was going to be like now. And so that is probably baked into our brains that that we just we really don't look into the future because it's always going to be like it is right now. But the last 70 years, we have blown the lid off that one. (laughs) And the future absolutely is not going to be like now. And so that purposeful change to a future where the traditions will hold, where we'll be able to um, 
to continue. We'll be able to to to. Um, I, I was going to say progress, but I I don't. I guess I don't really mean that. I mean um, uh, always progressing in art, in literature, you know, but but not in consumption. Progression or progress has has come to mean just more consumption, really growth, economic growth. Um, and we we want to progress in, in equity. We want to progress in civilness. Um, try to pull back from our regression. <laughs> um, yeah. So the I think having a process by which we can look at the future is necessary because we do not have the innate ability to look forward. Um, it's just not a not a thing. <laughs> but it's interesting how you describe the cohort of students, how this future focused work did spark their curiosity, did get their attention, because we've talked before about the the danger that we have of having to get that attention through doom. In front, we, we tend to, in sustainability, we tend to front load with doom to get their attention. But in this model, it's not doing that. Oh, doom crushes problem solving. <laughs> and what I, need, what I need my engineers to do, and when we go along with other members of the community, we're all in a ship, we're all going to the future, we, we get in a time machine and we go to the future and we're learning. And that is the key to, to with the boundaries of physics being what they are, um, learning from people of the future, just treating it like that, um, observing. And in that, doing that thing that humans are very good at, which is adapting to constraints. Um, you know, until oil, <laughs> um, all communities adapted to the constraints of their environment. And that's why we have such a rich um, cultural um, diversity around the world. It's mostly because of the place they were in. And, you know, there's people who have no wood, they have to use stones for building. There's people who have no stones have to use uh, wood or mud. There's yeah, so you just we can problem solve this. We can problem solve this, but we have to actually have a process where we put ourselves into that into that space without the baggage of doom. Without um, you know, if, if if you look at futuring, the field of futuring, um, they sort of go from where we are and they just launch off into um, you know, I don't know something. <laughs> In truth, if you want to talk about the future, you can just make stuff up. That's that's a legal part of that. Um, there isn't a department of futuring at, at Otago University of you know how how to study the future. <laughs> there is one for history. <laughs> There's one for women's studies, but not one for future studies. So we have to figure out what the rules are for going there and learning from our own understanding of how to adapt. And we have to have the engineers along with us because we don't want to fly off into fantasies of, of technologies. That, that's the pitfall of futuring really is that they, they just dream up technologies that, that really most engineers could tell you that's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, so how are they doing it? Which is really asking ourselves to do that work of, of, um, of uh, creating and Again, it's 100 years from now, so the people there don't have the same experience we do or the same expectations. They've done what's logical, what's possible, and what is, you know, 
fruitful because the last hundred years that the, in their history is about a really massive in, um, regeneration of everything. <laughs> so uh, I don't, yeah, I think the next next few um, generations are the regeneration. Um, they're, they'll actually make industries out of that. <laughs> The LED still flickers in your eyes Oh, you ought to spare your face the razor Because no one's gonna spare time for you No one's gonna watch you as you go From a house you didn't build and can't control Oh, you ought to spare your face the razor because no one's gonna spare the time for you You ought to spare the world you labor It's been 20 years and no one's told the truth So listen up So listen
Susan, we've seen lots of societal changes over the last year and a bit. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? Um, okay, so the last year and a half, I don't think we know what happened yet. Right? We, we all experienced something. Um, and we all are inclined to want to just go back to the way things were because I don't understand this thing that happened. And yet it happened for long enough. That virus is doing its best to teach us some things. <laughs> You know, it happened for long enough that it that we're starting to forget why why was I driving an hour and a half each way to go to work? What what was that about? And why aren't there affordable houses where there should be? Um, maybe we should change that, right? So it's the the good old virus has really loosened us up. Um, in New Zealand, of course, we didn't have the same really long lockdown that other people had. Um, and so we were able to get together. And in November of last year, um, engineers from around New Zealand got together in a national um, convergence, we called it. Um, so we had engineers of all types. We got together and we did it without flying because that's our thing is to, uh, to not use oil. Um, and so we had uh, a lot of meetings around the country that were simultaneous. And um, actually, the, the keynotes from that are online, if anybody wants to look up convergence for carbon uh, reduction or carbon. And I can't remember what it's called. Convergence, though. I remember that. <laughs> and at that convergence, we, um, we didn't just listen to things. We debated. And we came up with four things. Um, that we all agreed we would spend time on doing, that this, this has to be done. And one of them is that all engineers in our country need to take climate emergency first responder training. <laughs> the carbon cannot get into the air without your engineers. Therefore, we're, we have to respond to this emergency by changing what we do. And that training went live in April. <laughs> so that's, that's online now. And it's um, at Canterbury University. The engineers actually earn a micro-credential when they do it. So you can tell who's got the training and who has it. Um, and then we made another um, one for managers. Because engineers, um, we can do things that we must do according to our professional due diligence. Um, but it's so much easier if the market wants it, <laughs> if the managers, if the clients are saying that's what we want. So then we've also uh, got a very short um, sort of executive education um, uh, offering as well. So your counselors, your off, your um, council workers, uh, your your CEOs, your managers, they all need to, to take this um, half day course, basically. Um, and that's just learning the language that we just talked about. Just, just how do we even think about this thing? How do we get out from under the impossibilities? Um, and then um, we also said that the government should have a um, chief transition engineering advisor the same way they have a chief scientific advisor. <laughs> because science is great, but you're getting, you're, the, the government's doing some pretty loopy things. <laughs> as far as what's actually possible to do. So they need a they need an engineering advisor too um, and a transition engineering advisor. So there that's some that's some good work that we can carry on with. So everyone 
uh, find an engineer and tell them to take this course. What we what we really saw was that if every engineer in New Zealand had this first responder training um, within the next two years, then the future would be different. I have, uh, <laughs> I have some questions to end the show with and close to negative time to get through them. So we're going to go real fast. What's, okay, the biggest, good. what's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Well, I was in the Queen's honour. I got a gong. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> oh, but actually the biggest one is I also have a granddaughter now. And granddaughter. I have a little <laughs> Congratulations on that too. What, oh, is your, what is your superpower? Staying positive. <laughs> um, I can't. I can't stop believing that that future that we want to go to is out there, and so I just stay positive and keep working. And like I said, icebreaker. Take everybody with me. The thing that I've just drawn big circles around is a thing you said earlier on when you're talking about that future to gift over to our grandchildren. Moving through the future with the belief that this is possible. I think that that's the that's the superpower for me. Do you, do you consider yourself to be an activist? Um, I'm a crazy activist within engineering. Yeah, engineering has to change. It, it, we have to have a movement of change in that field that has really not been addressed yet. So um, I definitely will go out and march with um, 350 or the students or whatever. But but that's where my activism is, is in the heart of the uh, the heart of Mordor, actually. Got to got to liberate the orcs. Stop destroying the world, little orgies. <laughs> what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um. What must be? Something happens now. Somebody does something now that changes what's possible. And I will get up every day and I will work on that. <laughs> and what's the biggest challenge you're looking forward to in the next year or so? Being away from my Makabuna. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's going to be awful. Um, yeah, so I, I have to get Orkney sorted out, get them to net zero fast so I can get back to New Zealand. <laughs> and lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Um, absolutely. Get my book. <laughs> it is very readable. Actually, my, my year nine nephew has read my book and said, can I take this to my to my teacher, I wrote it that way purposefully, so it cuts across all. You know, everybody can read it, um, but especially engineers should get a new perspective from reading it. Um, so that is transition engineering. Funny enough, is the title of it, and you can get it at half price by ordering it from Canterbury University. Awesome! Thank you very much for that, Mawira. Um, Susan, there are a thousand things I'd like to say, but there's no time. So all I can say is thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you do to make the world a better place. Thank you. You are welcome, and we'll all we'll all keep going. Thank you for joining us. All right.
shining at the end of every day. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow, and tomorrow's just a dream away. Man has a dream, and that's the start. He follows his dream with mind and heart. When it becomes a reality, it's a dream come true for you and me. So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow, just a dream away. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.